Tech Fan number five with Tim Robertson and David Biedney. Welcome to another exciting episode of Tech Fan. My name is Tim Robertson. I'm the host of the show. And as I've said in the past, we're going to have kind of a rotating co-host type of deal. Sometimes it'll be interview show. Sometimes it'll be different co-hosts. This time, it's a co-host. It's another David, but this time, David Bienni. Hello, David. Hey, Tim. How's it going, man? Good. Did we ever have you on the MyMac show? I don't remember. Yeah, I think I was on like one time. yeah. And I said something bad about uh, Steve Jobs, and you you banned me. Ban you for life. You, you <laughs> sent me off to the corn patch. Uh, and I know for a fact we had you on OWC Radio just earlier this year when I was yeah. doing that show. Yeah. And, absolutely. you know, I, I can't go too long in in tech fan without getting David Biedney on. <laughs> <laughs> well, I am a technologist. People ask me what I do. Uh, I have this stock answer, which is I'm a technologist. And they sort of look at me like, well, what does that mean? And I look at them and I say, well, it means that when I was a kid, I was one of those people who was ripping apart radios oh, yes. and messing around with them to see if I could uh, change the frequency response characteristics and, and plugging electric guitars into old two preamp-based open-reel tape decks to get messed up distortion before I even knew what a fuzz box was. <laughs> so... Uh, my life is so wrapped up in this, Tim, and it's fascinating to me how there's this whole generation or two of people who got involved with tech because they had this perception it's where the big money was. Right. And I, it makes me laugh because I've never really made the big money in tech. I've always done it because I don't know what else to do in my life. This is the stuff that fascinates it's me. It's your calling. I guess so. I, I wonder about that sometimes, but yeah, I guess it is. People ask me kind of what my, uh, you know, how did you put it, what your job description is? Yeah. Yeah. People ask me, you know, what what's my title? And I usually say, just asshole. It's... Oh, jeez. <laughs> okay, well, I know that you don't you're not have language problems on the show then. No, no. Uh, well, I try to keep it somewhat clean, but, you know, I, I'm not going to drop any F-bombs if I can help it. But All right. I'll, I'll try not to either. That's, be... that's the nice thing about owning your own content. You know what I mean? That's also the nice thing about no FCC regulations on the internet. Well, you know, I've I've been listening to uh, I like NPR, uh, the technology podcast. They just kind of repurpose all the radio stuff that's tech related, right? And throw it once a week into this technology feed. And they were talking about it's probably two weeks ago because I'm way behind on listening to it. Maybe even three weeks ago. What other countries are considering as cyber warfare? Now, when you and I think of cyber warfare. We think of, you know, you're attacking a computer system, right? Denial of service stuff. Yeah, right. messing up servers. Sure. Countries like Iran and Russia and China, when they talk of computer warfare, cyber war, they're talking about ideas. Mm. One government sprouting ideas targeting the population or civilians of another government, another country, and trying to, in our case, spread democracy, say, in Iran or capitalism in, say, China. And they want to put, they're putting pressure on the world governments to adapt and adopt resolutions to ban that. (sighs) You know, here's the thing. Oh, man. And we have listeners all over the world. But the United States built this thing. And I hate to say we built it so we can make the rules, but you know what? We built it. We're going to make the rules. This is just my opinion. Oh, come on. And freedom, yeah. creative freedom, uh, just freedom in general, freedom of speech, freedom of whatever, has to go along with the Internet. It has to be there. I kind of worded that wrong. It, well, it, the I, Internet's nothing if we, if we cannot freely share ideas. It, I, 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 on a core level... 
in the hacker spirit, I I absolutely agree with you. But you always have this problem when you talk about freedom, where you you have to draw this line in the sand. Where does my freedom end, and where do your freedoms begin? And uh, it really and 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 we don't want to go down this road on this show. Believe me. Because I do this podcast that uh, I don't really advertise much, even though it gets a sick amount of traffic at this point, <laughs> called Angry Human, uh-huh. that uh, really gets into these topics in depth. And uh, it's, it's a very slippery slope when you say uh, that uh, we created... I mean, I understand the idea that, yes, the Internet came out of a collaboration between the um, intelligence community, the military, our military... And academia. But that's, that's not even who made it popular. It was still uh, the people of the United States who really adopted this and kind of grew it right at the beginning. Well, when it, when it really yeah. started going. Because remember, back in the day, there was debate on whether they were going to allow commercial Internet. Right. And we also have to qualify the fact that the Internet was a manifestation of computer networking that existed before the internet was available to the public. Yep. And I think it's really important to underscore that that was not a an American uh, phenomenon. Th- 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 that was a, a, a global phenomenon. It, modems found their way all over the world. And, and this was something that the internet really built upon, but it, it's... It, I, I really like to think of this as a global thing. I do too, but here's the problem with it being a global thing. Do you want the Chinese government to impose sanctions on what you say online because your content is being consumed in their country? I'm more concerned about what corporations, multinational corporations that have no understanding nor care for nationalist boundaries or concepts – I have more concerns about the limitations they're going to place in my freedom at this point. So, you know, the thing about this whole conversation, Tim, is that I tend to now view all of this in a global perspective, understanding that uh, this is a planet that is a corporate feudal state at this point in time. I'm no longer under the uh, delusion of democracy, my friend. I mean, I and again, we don't want to take the show down this road uh, because this this takes us into very polarized territory and uh i'm at a point now where having grown up outside of the united states having my brain rewired to be <laughs> bilingual at an early age I, I i see this all very differently man no i i get it i think what happens is when when you deal with the world at large rather than just your backyard just the customers that walk through your shop door yeah, uh, someone like me who I, you know, I, I'm friends with people all over the world. Mm-hmm. So and, am I. Yep, and it does change yeah. your perspective. Yeah, it really does. Yeah, nationalism no longer does it for me. I, no, I, I agree. You know what I'm saying? It 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 doesn't. I'm, and and like I said, it, it's a slippery slope because in in our country, in the United States, our conversation, the discourse is so polarized. And it's polarized in all ways. Absolutely. You know, Absolutely. we talk about technology. Everything is right? Coke and Pepsi. Everything. Everything is right, left, yep. uh, black, white, red, blue, Coke, Pepsi, Mac, Windows, iPad versus everything else. I mean, it's always, everything always seems to be set up in this duality. And I sometimes wonder if that's a byproduct of the physiology of our brains. Maybe that's because we're human beings. We're tribal. We've always brain. been tribal. Well, sure, we're pack animals. Yeah. Like dogs. Yep. <laughs> dogs that know how to use mice to, to mouse around and click on stuff. That's right. I know. It's it's a sad way to see humanity, but actually it's a practical way if you try to try to understand and predict human behavior. Speaking of behavior, what do you think of the behavior of Adobe and Microsoft? Oh, man. What do you think is going on? We had a, a good conversation last week on the subject, but you're kind of in a unique position. I'd like to get your thoughts and opinions on it. Oh, boy. Yeah. Uh, Bomber goes and meets with the CEO of Adobe. Which uh, in itself is nothing. I mean, yeah. Adobe is probably one of the very biggest contributors to the Windows platform as far as being a developer. I mean sure. – they're huge. So that that in itself isn't even newsworthy. 
No. Uh, uh, we, we hear things about uh, the, the idea that they're combining their forces together to combat Apple. Right. Uh, because somehow we have to get Flash more out there. <laughs> uh, which I really wish at this point that journalists who write about this stuff would take the time to learn about the things they're writing about. And now you're just being silly. Uh, you know, I know. I, I have a dream. <laughs> it's an odd dream. But why can't they learn that Flash, as a technology, I mean, there's a reason that has nothing to do with politics at all, that Apple decided to make it so that it wasn't really optimum to have Flash running on their portable devices because of the simple fact and this is well known in the developer industry. This is no secret uh, that Flash is not designed to run well on things like battery power. That's right. It simply isn't. It was never developed with that in mind. I mean, the fact of the matter is that Flash is a technology that started out simply as a way to render vector-based graphics with anti-aliasing on the client side of the equation. It started its life as future Splash animator. Uh, Charlie Jackson of Silicon Beach Software brought that puppy to bear with Jonathan Gay, his primary programmer, and they ended up selling that thing to Macrome Macromedia. I almost said Macromind, showing my age I'd, there. I'd have oh. corrected your, <laughs> your misnomer there. Well, I mean, he sold it off to them, basically, as I said, to use as a technology to deliver anti-alias vector-based graphics and, more importantly, anti-alias text That's right. on the client side. This was the thing about Future Splash Animator that made it compelling. That now, we're was talking 1990, I'm going to say 8. I was going to say 7 or 8. 7 or 8, I, yeah. I remember the Macworld in San Francisco that I ran into Charlie and he was just about to do the deal, and he said, you're one of the first people I'm going to tell. Because I had known him for years, had been uh, uh, involved with stuff that he was doing for many years. I mean, that's a fascinating company with a really colorful, absolutely uh, fascinating history in software development. They had a bunch of firsts. You mean Macromedia? N no, uh, a Silicon Beach okay. software, man. Right. All right. For Airborne, the first game with digitized sound, mm -hmm. it was great. And they also had Digital Darkroom. Years before Adobe ever even saw Photoshop, uh, Digital Darkroom was a totally viable, incredibly powerful image, pixel-based image editing program that had some really great features in it, really key stuff. Um, they, they did a lot of, of, of things early on, and Charlie was a very smart businessman. The point of all of this is that Macromedia and then Adobe took this thing and started grafting stuff onto it. Let's graft a programming language in. Let's graft animation capabilities in that compared to Director, which was really Macromedia's primary. Yeah, that was their flagship. That was it. Yep. Uh, you know, Flash as an animation tool was just woefully inadequate. But it was really designed for, because going back looking at Director, that was a, there was a steep learning curve there. Absolutely. And the, and the web developers of the time, 99, 2000, needed something very simple to just to do basic animation on a website. And Flash was very good for that purposes. You didn't have to get into the detail that you would have to in the depth. Well, I, I have to – got to challenge you on that one. As an animation tool, director was far and, – and I believe – in many ways, still is far superior to Flash. If what? Oh no, 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 no! I agree. I totally agree. Okay. I'm talking about ease of use from a web developer from that perspective. Well, who's a web? See, but that that begs an interesting question, Tim. So, who's a web developer nowadays? Nobody. But we're talking about ninety nine <laughs> two thousand, where I was doing web development back then on the side. Oh, sure. But a lot of people that were at that time web developers were repurposing their skill sets from multimedia production. Some of them. Not a lot of them, though. Okay, well, some of them. I mean, some of them, you know, you didn't have the field of information architecture right. the way you do now. Um, schools were at that time not really offering any kind of degree programs in any of this. And, and look, I was involved very early on with the School of Visual Arts in Manhattan. Um, they had one of the first MFA programs in interactive media. This is back in the late 80s. 
So they were doing this stuff very early on. And what I used to tell my students about doing CD-ROM development work, I used to say, look. <laughs> I remember that doing, was the big thing. That was, was the huge thing. Yep. And Director was, was the it. Cool. That, that was, was it. it. Yeah. Yep. And the whole thing of that, the emphasis of education at that time around this stuff was telling my students what you guys are doing now is you're simulating future television. Yep. That's what you're doing. One day, television is going to work like this. And so what we're doing now in this CD-ROM world, where we were developing stuff on single-speed CDR drives, CD-ROM drives, which was so absolutely dreadful. It was kind of like the equivalent <laughs> of a 2400-board modem. Yep, I remember I all two of us. I actually still have one of those one-speed burn to, oh, my God, it took forever. Forever? And, 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 and remember how much the so, blanks were? Oh, my God. And they were so flaky, you would get... If you bought a, a pack of twenty, which would cost you seventy bucks, oh yeah, you always get two or three that were bad. Always it's buffer underruns. Oh remember those? god! Oh man, it was a whole thing. There was, and what's sad about this, Tim, is that all of this, all of this, has been lost in the sands of time. Well, no, not I, not to, not not to you and I, but you're right. To most people, I, mean, I still think there needs to be a a book. That really chronicles, I'm going to say, from the beginning of the Macintosh up to Mac OS X. So basically, yeah. 84 to 2000, where everything we're doing right now is really on the backs of what was happening there. But that history in technology is really fuzzy for a lot of people. And very I think fuzzy. I think it's very important. Maybe you and I should collaborate and write a book. I've been thinking about well, a book is one way to do it. I think website. Are, I think there are other ways. I, I think that, um, and I've been actually talking with a close friend of mine here about just this topic because I know that just my web of connections and contacts in the technology industry, you know, to look at the, I mean, just just the simple, I mean, like Photoshop, right? The history of the development of bitmap image editing software. Which people think began and ended with Photoshop, and that is so not the case. No. Right. There is an absolutely deep, fascinating history that led up to Photoshop. And ironically enough, Tim, I personally was deeply involved with the primary development efforts that had happened before Photoshop. And, and I have to tell you, it was mostly these pairs of programmers. At the earliest pair were Mark Zimmer and Tom Hedges, the guys that did Image Studio, Color Studio... You know, we talked about Airborne as the first game with digitized sound. They used the Mac recorder hardware, or the, no, no, I'm sorry, I take that back. SoundCap, which was the very first Mac audio digitizer that Zimmer and Hedges made. And, and, and Mark Zimmer, Tom Hedges, very sadly passed away a number of years ago from cancer. Mark Zimmer is now some senior scientist at Apple. He's working on way advanced tech stuff at Apple Computer. But Mark Zimmer really was, in many ways, the, 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 the godfather of image editing on, on anything. Uh, and, and he had chosen, at that time, the Mac. They had a program called The Realist, which ran on a, on a Mac SC. This is a Mac without any kind of color or even grayscale display. You could scan images into your computer with a scanner into your Mac SC. You could edit them on a, on a black-and-white screen... But the program internally could deal with eight bits of grayscale information. So you could like edit images on a black and white screen, but edit in grayscale and then print the results on a laser writer. Mm -hmm. And what would pop out, I mean, this is at a time when that was magic, dude. Oh, absolutely. It was like, whoa. Um, so you had Zimmer and Hedges that did Image Studio. They did The Realist, which was their first effort of doing an image editing package. They did Image Studio and Color Studio for Electroset. And uh, you had uh, Keith McGregor and Jerry Harris, who uh, had this program called Pixel Paint, which Super Mac used to sell a whole lot of 24-bit color video boards. Um, and, and for a while, Pixel Paint was like the color painting tool on the Mac, too. Um, and really, in many ways, was an image editor in disguise. Uh, and, and it's funny, uh, Jerry Harris... Part of that programming duo ended up working at Adobe, and in fact, he is the architect of the entire advanced brushing engine in Photoshop. Hmm. It's this guy, Jerry Harris, who 
Um, I mean, <laughs> Tim, I can tell you that I visited Keith and 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 uh, and Jerry in their offices in Atlanta. This has got to be like, I want to tell you this was like 88, 89. Tim, they had a pressure-sensitive mouse. Really? Oh, oh yeah. It's the only one I ever saw. They had a prototype. It was a mouse with a pressure-sensitive button. So the harder you press on the button, the wider your paintbrush shape would get. Yeah, it they were only like, about 15 years ahead of their time. It was insane. It was crazy stuff. So the point being that, uh, and I was deeply involved with, with that duo as well. And then you had uh, Charlie Jackson and his guys uh, doing Digital Darkroom. That was kind of a side thing that had happened. And there were even other programs. There's a whole history to that whole field that essentially, Tim, has been lost. It's not documented anywhere. Well, you know, I think that that's important. And here's my problem, or here's my fear. It's not a problem. My fear is that as time goes on, we start to lose these people. Right. And really now and for the next 10 years is the time to to get their story out there. I agree. Whether it's a podcast like this or right. it's a website. Um, but it, it takes a lot of time and it has to be someone who's at least passing – uh, not passing knowledge of what was going on. Um, well, that's why I figure I've got to do this because I was there, man. I, I know where a lot of these skeletons are buried. Well, we should we should talk after the show and and uh, maybe do something together. I can uh, bring some expertise to the table and. Okay, no, I, I think it's worth talking about. I and think so too. It, what ends up happening with history, and this is something it took me a long time to understand. Uh, as a kid, I, I used to question the. The, in, the the wisdom of studying history to some extent. I'd say, you know, who really cares? I mean, the future is the future. But what I didn't understand at that time was that history definitely repeats itself. Oh, yes. And in the case of software development, um, people redesign the wheel all the time. All the time. And one thing that I have been really sort of shocked by is how little we seem to have learned about things like interface design and feature design. And oh, so I, I'm with you 100% there. Oh. Too often, you'll see a solution that someone's trying to incorporate into a piece of software, whether it's a, a web interface or an app interface or whatever, and you just think, have, not, have they not been around long enough to realize that what they're trying to do has been solved a lot better than what they're doing. Yep. And there's conventions out there that we're all used to, and you're breaking those conventions for real, really, no reason at all. And it, it just drives me crazy. <laughs> it's like we, we all know what a checkbox is. You don't need to try to reinvent that. I know. Man. You know, it, I, I'd wonder. love to hear the audience's uh, observations on that. You guys can always call and leave a message. It's one eight zero one nine three eight five 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 nine. Let me try that and not, you know, kind of cough this time. One eight zero one nine three eight five 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 nine. And of course, feedback at mymac.com or Tim at mymac.com. Either one. Uh, send us your feedback on this discussion. What do you guys think? Would you be interested in reading the Computer Chronicles. I know that was already taken at one time. That was a PBS show, wasn't it? Computer Chronicles. I think it was. I'm, I, I can see the host face in my mind. Yeah, Robert Kringley, wasn't it? Or no, uh, maybe no, not. it was another guy, Dan something. Yeah. I. I, I but that concept needs to come yeah. back. We we need this history, and we need to preserve it. And uh, you know, I, I think we do, and and I think that um, something I'd love to see someday. It's so, a place where you could go run old software. And that's a whole other topic. Man. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. You know, uh, a place that had machines set up that were running like versions of OS 6, right? Uh, or OS 7. Oh, wait. Did I just call it OS 6? Yes. Finder 6.0. Yes. <laughs> Mac OS 7. What the hell is wrong with me? OS 7. Oh, Lord. Uh, yeah. I think OS 7. No, was it OS 7 or OS System 8 was 7. an actually a company? 7. This OS stuff didn't come to OS X. There, no, a lot of it didn't. And Apple themselves keeps breaking away from just the user guidelines or the, the interface guidelines. Like I the new version of iTunes. 
yeah. Oh, my God. They put the, the buttons as a traffic signal on the left-hand side of the window going down. It's like really what what I can't see any practical reason to do that, none. Uh, I I'm not going to even try to join jump to their defense because I know better. Oh, it <laughs> destroys me, batty. Hey, and and while we're on the topic, let's bring back HyperCard. Okay, let's. I just had to get that out of the way. Yeah, why not? Well, actually, why not? Indeed. Uh, it's it's sad. It's sad because um, I mean a lot of people learn to program using HyperCard. Absolutely, and it was a a gateway drug, if you will. Absolutely, it, it was. An what is there now attack. like that? Nothing. Well, HTML. Well, that's basically what there is. Uh, yes, but I mean that's that's the the bottom line. HTML took the place of HyperCard. Uh, meanwhile, you could actually use HyperCard to make. Real stuff. I, I had friends who were running cash registers and retail systems on HyperCard stacks. Oh, I, I absolutely remember those. Right? I, may, maybe AppleScript Studio, maybe? Combined with what, Automator? Oh, God. I don't know. Man. Oh, Jesus. There's man. Re- I mean, there's a lot of solutions out there, but there's nothing that I think is really, really popular that really jumps out and says, hey, this – Hey, kids, you're interested in tech and writing programs? Here's how you start. I guess a company like Apple would point you at, you know, the developer tools that they provide to write iOS apps. Yeah, but... Objective-C, but that's not really a jumping-in point. No, it's not. I mean, not in the way that HyperCard was. HyperCard, you could make stuff. It comes down to gratification, instant gratification. And, And with software, there is this threshold where if there is a good level of instant gratification... It doesn't matter if there's huge depth there. If you've got instant gratification, it pulls people in. HyperCard was an incredibly deep development environment. It really was. And especially because it was extensible. Exactly. You, 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 could, you could plug stuff into it. And that notion of plug-in and, and object-based software, which HyperCard wasn't truly object-based, but this, this modular approach to software ends up making, in many ways, a lot of sense. And... You could open up HyperCard and be making useful stacks within five minutes. But, Most- you know, here's the difference, though. The people who really got into HyperCard in the day grew up with command line interfaces. They didn't grow up with GUIs. So by the time they got to the age of where they're going to start programming, that was when GUI started really coming out in the mid-'80s. Um, so they were very comfortable using computers to program with because that's really the only thing you could do with an Apple II or an old DOS machine. You know, you couldn't go to the store and and buy this great piece of software that did everything you could ever want. It just didn't happen. You had to literally program the damn thing yourself a lot of the times. So the, well, sure. the generation that came up on HyperCard came from the generation of command line interface computers, time sharing. Well, but where, where, do, where are the kids coming from now? Well, now they're basically coming from a place where um, touch screens and iPods and well, a lot of them don't even think about where stuff. They don't think about the inner workings. A lot of them, there is a, a and again, not to take this in in a <laughs> in a sociological uh, uh, down a sociological path, but basically, we've become much more disconnected from um, the sourcing of things. And Tim, I mean, to understand that, and I'm not a parent, so I don't deal with this, but um, ask any teenager what they know about the history of electricity. Well, that's more to do with the school system than anything else. I understand, True. but... They won't even know who Tesla is. They'll think that's a 80s and 90s rock band. Right. Yeah. Right, but they don't, they don't really, they don't know who Tesla is. They really don't know much about uh, Edison, really. All they, Unfortunately. They have, they have these vague ideas of oh, didn't like Benjamin Franklin have something to do with that? And uh, and a key, right? Something to do with and, the key. and a key. It's <laughs> lightning and a kite, right? And then and Lucy pulled the ball away from Charlie Brown, and he fell. And it was that in the story somehow? But seriously, you're, you're talking about not just anything, but the entire foundation of our entire civilization at this point. But isn't it getting better? Uh, I don't think so. You don't think so? Now, in fact, I can. Uh, I just put up something on my Facebook wall this week that proves not only is it getting not getting better, it's getting worse. Or is it just that we're more knowledgeable because we're so connected that 
bad news travels so much faster than it used to that it just seems like it's getting worse, even though realistically it's getting better. Well, um, that's open for debate, obviously. Uh, but uh, I think that it's true that we know more about what goes on. We're more plugged into what hap- what's going on if we're thus motivated. Well, a- yes, a but a lot of it's getting shoved at you now. Well, uh, uh, but there's so much getting shoved at you that basically you end up shutting a lot of it out. Yeah, that's true. And, and we're not, we're, we've not, I'll tell you what we're not getting better at is filtering out the noise, the signal from the noise. We're, For- we're no better at that. that that's something that, and, and I deal with this um, where I teach. I mean, I, I'm, I'm taking uh, uh, students who are, they're not children. I mean, they're, they're young adults. And um, I'm teaching them digital skills, but I'm also teaching them some critical thinking. And, and I'm dealing with top-crust students at a top-crust Ivy League school. I mean, basically the best of the best. Top-crust or top-crust? <laughs> the crusty. <laughs> no, 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 you know, top-tier. Top tier. You know what I'm saying? Oh, yeah. Jesus. Well, let's get back to the, the, the Microsoft Adobe chat. What do oh, you yeah, think? Oh, yeah, let's get back to that, please. Um, because when I heard that, I, I blew a gasket, man. I just blew a gasket. I blew a gasket because uh, Adobe stock ended up getting pumped up because there were rumors that Bomber was uh, thinking about buying Adobe, acquiring Adobe. And this made Adobe stock go up, and people were going, oh, yeah, this will be great. And I thought, oh, my, <laughs> jeez, this will be great for, for who exactly? Are you kidding me? Microsoft basically bringing their magic golden touch to the graphics market? Oh, joy. But from a purely business perspective, their core competencies do line up well. However... <laughs> Adobe has traditionally been a company all about innovating with their software, and Microsoft not so much. Well, Microsoft really is sort of known for acquiring things yeah. at this point. Is Microsoft different than they used to be, though? Really, it gets down to that. Are, are they no. the same company? No. Listen, the history of Microsoft is based on theft. Let, let's be clear about this. I mean, if we're going to talk about these things... Microsoft ended up becoming the juggernaut that they are because they basically played a, sh- a three-card Monty game with, with, uh, with, with IBM and what, Seattle Computer or Seattle Software. I always screw that up. The company that originally developed DOS. Well, it was one guy. Okay, one guy. Basically, they, they didn't like cut some deal with IBM with some great thing they cooked up in-house. No. No. They... they-, they- they essentially ripped off this one guy, and that's what they did. They basically ripped him off and got IBM by the short hairs. So there was some definitely some smart strategy going on because essentially IBM, this huge, massive dinosaur, that didn't really understand that much. No, they thought the money was in the hardware. They didn't yeah. want to put any R&D in developing their software. Uh, they go to Microsoft. They approached Microsoft. Oh, yeah. They said, we need an OS. Well, Microsoft and Gary killed off. Yeah, there were two. It was two. There were two parties, and you know, Gary really got the short end of that stick. But that's <laughs> like a whole nother story. And so Microsoft says, "Absolutely, we've got one." And of course, yeah. they didn't. They did. The only thing that they had was a basic compiler for the Altair at the point. That's mm-hmm. all they had. Oh yeah. And so they went, found an OS, gave the guy what fifty thousand. It was a. A pittance. A pittance. It was just, it was well, it's not, it's not their fault that the guy didn't know that they had a, a, a business proposition from IBM. I understand. And that's it, smart it, business. I, don't, I, I wouldn't say that's thievery. Well, I, it all depends on, on your point of view. Well, if I came to you, you've got a gadget A, and yeah. I come to you and say, I really want gadget A. You're not doing crap with it. It's just a hobby for you. Um, you if you even have a business plan, no one's ever seen it. You run it out of your house. This is all what was going on with at the time. And I say, I want that. I want to own it. And I'm willing to give you $50,000 right now for it. And you say, yeah, hell, this has cost me a lot of time and effort. I'm really not doing anything with it. It's a mature operating system. But, yeah, you know, it, there's really not a, a whole lot of inherent value in that because, let's be honest, at that time there was a lot of 
command line interfaces, oh, yeah. uh, operating systems. There was a lot of them out there. There was at least 20. Well, computers were a hobbyist thing. Yep. This was not, there was no And that's all this market. guy was. He was a hobbyist. Yeah, 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 yeah. So he took the money. Microsoft changes very little and licenses it, which is the key, licenses it to IBM. And IBM was like, we don't even care about the software. Yeah, you can own that. We'll just, you know, we'll license it from you. I know. One of the greatest snafus in all of Oh, absolutely. So where is the thievery? Well, again. uh, I'm not a fan of of Microsoft. Well, I like some of their technology. Thievery is a bit strong. It certainly wasn't innovation. Now, if you want to go with Windows, yes. That's a whole nother. Right. There, I have some major problems with the ethics of the development of Windows, absolutely. But initially, what they did with personally, that fifty thousand dollars was actually a pretty big gamble on Microsoft's part at the time. They didn't know if IBM was really going to be successful in the PC market. I mean, this was uh, a mainframe Tim, company. Tim, Tim, Tim. They were using off-the-shelf parts. They didn't. Yes, Tim, but I don't think it was a risk at all uh, because basically, and 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 the the philosophy at the time was: remember the saying. You don't get fired buying IBM. Yes, but so still, I, I really, the, you got to remember can't. what the the PC market was. It like you you just said it was hobbyists, so well, they did well, take a, a pretty big hold risk. On. Tim, Tim, wait a minute. Um, it, it, it was hobbyists, sort of. You it know, was Apple, an education, thanks to the Apple II. Yeah, Apple yep. Apple II's were were selling very briskly. That you could find them in any school across the country. Right, and once Bricklin came out with VisiCalc. It was huge. It, w- it was huge. And and all of a sudden now every business had an Apple II cranking away with the with, with this the counting. Right. Okay. So and- again, it, it goes back to Microsoft at then and say Apple's doing gangbusters, they're king of the hill in desktop computers, and IBM's coming in it with no innovation, off the shelf parts. Yeah, yeah. Don Estridge was given the mandate, come up with an Apple II like machine. Using off-the-shelf components, no custom circuitry, because the Apple II was full of custom stuff that Wozniak designed. Yep, that was the magic of the Apple II. Uh, you know, they it, it was a combination of Wozniak's incredible engineering skills. The guy was an absolute and is a genius. All right, you have you have that, and you have Jobs being the very intelligent marketeer. Yep, which he's always been. You know, Steve Jobs. There, and, and I'm no Jobs apologist. I have all sorts of issues with him. But the one thing I'll give him is that he definitely understands how to create mystique and how to market stuff. He knows human nature. Absolutely. Well, he seems to. Um, so, But that's a big, that's still a big risk for IBM as far as getting into that market because it looked like Apple had it cornered. But again, I, don't, I, really, I have to disagree strongly because basically IBM – knew that they had a built-in marketplace. All of the places that had their mi- their minis and their mainframes were all going to certainly line up to buy this new IBM smart terminal, this microcomputer, um, because the, all of the people who were in the banks, who were in institutions that had, you know, because, again, while Apple might have been selling Apple IIs with VisiCalc to people who wanted spreadsheets, the big institutions were running IBM system, what, 34s, 38s? Mainframes, right. They were, well, actually, or those dumb were terminals. minis. Those were yes. minis. Um, on the mainframe side, you had the 360, the 360 series. You had all that stuff. Um, so basically, IBM saw the market as we've got – they wanted to sell their machines to people who might consider an Apple II, but knew that if it was a choice between this young upstart Apple – and IBM, the company supplying them with all their high-end hardware, well, they were clearly going to go with the IBM. So, I mean, look, again... That was their hope. I don't know if you can necessarily say they knew that for a fact. Well, I, I'm, I, 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 again, we can debate that, but neither, neither of us were in the IBM That's true. Offices, right? Absolutely. I, I, I somehow don't think internally they saw it as, as a huge risk. I think Microsoft was very, very smart. They outmaneuvered everybody. Oh, oh no question And they succeeded, but... That being said, we come to 2010, Microsoft is still doing gangbusters as far as profitability. I mean, but they seem to be in this mindset now, David, that we're in trouble. We're not leading in these emerging markets. We need to make some kind of moves. Well, here's Adobe 
whose big online development, Flash, doesn't work on the hottest selling products on the planet, the iOS devices. Do they even have anything to talk about? Seriously. I, I can understand it from a business perspective, at least from Microsoft's point of view, but neither one of these companies are losing money. No, no, not at all. And one of the things we have to recognize is that Microsoft has attempted repeatedly to gain some kind of foothold in the graphics and media industries, and it, it just hasn't failed every time. It just hasn't worked out. And, and I've been close to some of those efforts. I mean, for example, um, Microsoft a number of years ago uh, bought up a guy by the name of Alvy Ray Smith. Now, anybody who knows about the history of computer graphics would recognize that name. That guy is one of the founders of Pixar. He invented the Alpha Channel at the New York Institute of Technology back in the 70s. Um, he was one of the, 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 the key scientists at Pixar that uh, developed the software and the imaging stuff that went into the infamous Genesis sequence mm -hmm. in the Wrath of Khan, which is what put Pixar on the map, basically, that sequence. Um, and he had come up with, and, and this is, I mean, I, I know this because I was, I was inside of the situation. I knew what was going on. Alfie had decided that, um, he was going to basically come in and upset Photoshop. He was, I think, personally not happy that this program had come into the market and had become basically an industry standard. Who, who were these Knoll brothers? He was going to, and this <laughs> the Alpha Channel. Right. So he was going to reinvent imaging, and he had this program he came up with called Altamira Composer. It's a Windows-only product that basically Alvi uh, put out there as this is the only true image, image, image editing program that is object-based. It has image objects. Now, Alvi, at that point, I was brought in as a consultant to Altamira. And I ended up having extensive meetings with Alvi and Eric Lyons, his main programmer, and these other guys that were working with them. And, I mean, I was in meetings trying to explain to these guys that what they thought was something unique about their software was not only not unique, but their approach that they were trying to implement was kind of ignoring other advances that had happened in the field. Imagine how often that happens. Well, it, 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 well, here's the thing. Alvi didn't want to hear any of this. Alvi basically wanted me to come in and validate what he was doing. Right. And I went in and said to Alvi, no, no Alvi, uh, some, there's some problems here. And you, you're not inventing something new. And I said, all due respect, Alvi, I know all about your work. I'm a huge fan of yours, a, a serious fan of yours. But that's not why you hired me. You hired me to help you like, get a clear understanding of what you're going up against and the bottom line of all of this was that Alvi basically took what they were doing and ended up getting acquired by Microsoft. And the idea was that Microsoft had now was going to now take Alvi with his incredible experience and expertise, and they were going to make a Photoshop killer. And we all see how that turned out. I'm talking with uh, David Biedney. Um, David, we need to take a quick break. I want to put in a, a little spot for the MyMac podcast here, and we'll be right back. Hi, everyone. It's Gaz. And Guy, the G-Men from the MyMac.com podcast. Each week, we bring you information you can really use, not just more of the same old Mac news. Also, we have occasional guests on the podcast from some of the Mac's top developers and users. That's right, not to mention inviting our own listeners onto the show to get their opinions and to find out what they use their Macs for. Since 2004, the MyMac.com podcast is the show you listen to when you don't want to take technology so seriously. Hold on, so are we relevant or irrelevant? No reason we can't be both. The MyMac.com podcast, irrelevantly relevant. Find us on iTunes. Just do a search in the podcast section with MyMac. Subscribe and prepare to be entertained. And we're back. Thanks a lot, Guy Gaz. Uh, if you guys listen to the podcast, if you're not subscribed to the MyMac podcast, do so. Of course, I was on that podcast for, I don't know, six years, five years, something like that. 
and went to OWC Radio, and now I'm on TechFan. So here we are talking with David Biedney. David, what is uh, what is your biggest fear in technology right now? What are you worried about? Ooh, Ooh silence. That's a good question. No, 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 no. Uh, I'll tell you what I'm, I'm worried about. I think that um, we've hit a point where innovation is getting stifled. Really? You think so? Well, this is something that I've been watching the last couple of years, Tim, and, and it definitely concerns me. I have seen this huge emphasis. I mean, look at what we're talking about, right? Um, Microsoft going after Adobe for Flash, basically. Mm. Meanwhile, Adobe makes a whole suite of really compelling products. Photoshop, After Effects, Premiere, InDesign, Illustrator, Acrobat. I know, you know, there's, it's interesting how there, there seems to be this huge amount of PDF hate out there. I don't understand that. I, I, I like PDF. PDF. Yeah, I don't know what people are freaking out. I, I like, I've always liked PDF. I don't like some of the exploits that's come up recently. But Adobe's been pretty quick on their feet to patch those. So, Oh, yeah. I think PDF, and, and I said this last week, PDF really fits in well for Microsoft in the Office category. It's much more of, of that than it is a Creative Suite solution. Well, you know, it's funny about that is the fact that all of these years, it has been so absolutely easy and transparent to generate PDFs from pretty much any Mac application. Yep. If it can print, you can get a PDF out. Got it. I mean, and, and, and so has, have we seen that in the Microsoft universe? They've tried. They've tried to make it so... Uh, .doc is the standard, but it's, we're moving away from that. Well, but here's the thing about .doc. Does a dots and, and here's here's all you need to know. I, I don't want to like so oversimplify this that people are just going to laugh. But uh, G, what's the real benefit of PDF from my simplistic point of view? Typography. Yep. God, it remembers, it, it embeds the relevant parts of the typeface so the thing will print and render properly. Does .doc do that? Well, of course not. It doesn't. We're done. Yep. End of story. I mean, you know, gee, typography. Is typography important for the written word? I don't know. Let me think about that for a minute. Who comes up with this stuff? Are you serious? Is that even a question? You know, here's the other part that most people don't even realize when it comes to PDF. Um, you can go really high-res PDF. In fact, most of the packaging done nowadays, uh, the final render is out to a PDF, and that mm-hmm. is what is uploaded to the big printers. That's right. It used to be Illustrator and Dreamweaver, or not Dreamweaver. Um, Illust- Quark Express, uh, man. Well, those- I was talking about packaging. That's more publication. All right. Okay. Um, what's the other one? Illustrator and... In design. No, 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 no. Before, from Macromedia. Oh, PageMaker. PageMaker, thank you. No, 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 no. All this, dude. Uh, Not PageMaker. No? For Macromedia? Page layout? What are you talking about? What was it? The Adobe. PageMaker and then InDesign. Is it PageMaker? Express on the site. Yeah, PageMaker, dude. All this. No, no, I'm talking about uh, Vector. Oh, freehand. Freehand, thank you. Oh, okay. Thank yes. you. When yeah. you when you when you're talking about packaging materials, a cereal right. box, uh, okay. that sort of thing. That was all done with freehand. Eventually it all kind of moved to Illustrator and yeah, now it's it, all moving to PDF. But hold on. What 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 you would generate the final product from those things were EPS files. Sometimes. It depends on the those- printer. But um, uh, uh, a PDF, really, I mean, I think PDF solved a lot of problems for people. Absolutely. But yeah. I, I've noticed lately on the web, there's a bunch of PDF hate out there. Where did that come from? The, the, the point of all of this, of course, just being that, you know, you've got, um, you're asking me about my greatest fear, right? Yep. And so we see these days, certainly from the development point of view, there's all of this emphasis on portable devices, on smartphones, on iPads, on what are essentially compromised platforms. They're, they're compromised. They're compromised in terms of the amount of programming power you have available to you and the amount of programming resources you have to create full-featured tools. And this is a... When I say full-featured tools, 
things used to make things. Mm-hmm. All right. So we, what we see with things like the smartphones, the iPads, and so forth, this whole new, not really new, but this really what seems to be now the most important category of devices um, in terms of what the media is covering, in terms of where development dollars are going, there is this huge emphasis on these devices that basically all have scaled down computing experiences. Meanwhile, what we're seeing on the desktop side of the equation, the real full feature computers, is that there is a lot less emphasis these days on application development for the big machines. These days, there's a lot more excitement about app development. App as in iPhone, iPad, again, portable devices. Um, this is creating, from my point of view, a slowdown in innovation on the desktop. It's definitely happening. And you, you see this in lots of different areas. And, and mind you, Tim, I'm someone who is passionate about tools I, and, and this is, it drives me crazy because when I see the really great tools that exist, for example, for manipulating images or for making sound, and essentially the, the media at this point ignores a lot of this stuff. And I'll give you a direct example of this. Um, for years I've been writing for Mac Addicts, now Mac Life. It's been really tough to get any writing work out of them pretty much all this year because they really seem a lot less interested in like covering applications and now it's all about iPhone stuff. But that I mean, sells. Well, well I look, I get it. Obviously that sells, but I'm someone who for years has been using the stuff these technologies to make things. And I understand it sells. So basically when does I was a child I had to walk Uphill no, both ways. But here's the primary <laughs> issue. Does the primary motivational factor for all this stuff become what sells? Because if that's the case, then basically it's one big, huge pornography world. Because that's ultimately what really sells, porn. So does that mean that that's where all the development money should go, into porn? Sure. No. <laughs> no, I'm sorry. <laughs> sorry, I'm wrong answer. Who, uh, I don't know I, what I was thinking about. <laughs> no, well, the point, and hey, listen, you know, uh, don't, don't, I'm going to say two words, Penthouse Interactive, all right? <laughs> I know all about that little world. No, I agree with okay. you. It, I think development on Mac and PC are being ignored by not only the press, but development houses as well. And... We can't have the little cute devices without the big devices that can create the stuff for the little devices. Well, you got it, brother. That's my point. Yep. Okay? The the cute little devices, and, and I've seen editorials about this that try to say that they're only consumption machines. I don't buy that. Okay? There are actually some really great tools. I mean, you pick up an iPad and, for example, go look up MorphWiz which is a piece of music software by this incredible keyboard player, Jordan Rudas from Dream Theater. Mm, You've got I like this, that band. Well, he's like one of the best keyboard players alive today. And, and, and people love to hate on Dream Theater because, oh, it's progressive rock. Gee, the guys actually know how to play their instruments. My God, what a drawback. They always reminded me of Queensryche. <laughs> well, not quite as, I don't think they're quite as heavy as Queensryche. Um, no, which, but it's, it's the, the opera rock. Yeah, yeah, That's yeah. That's what they oh, were. Absolutely. Yeah. So you've got it's it's grandiose in a sense. Yes. And the thing about Jordan, Jordan is an insanely good. He's many people consider him one of the best keyboard players alive, and for good reason. The guy is an insanely good keyboard player. Um, so he came up with this piece of software for the iPad called MorphWiz. All right, it is truly a new type of musical instrument that you can use to make music. And Jordan, in concert with Dream Theater, has got his iPad up on the stage, and he's playing solos on this thing. It's amazing. It's truly remarkable. And, and it, it, it's this great software instrument for 10 bucks. It is like the coolest thing you could play on your iPad. Point being that there is an example of a really cool tool of creation, a musical instrument. All right? But for every MorphWiz, 
there are 40 fart applications. Yeah, but you also have to remember the iPad hasn't even been out a year. Now, I know a lot of people sure. say, yeah, but the iPhone has been, and it's using the same SDK. Well, yes and no. Yes and no. Um, it's a different experience. It, it absolutely. I've been saying this since I got my hands on one, which was day one. The iPad is the greatest thing Apple ever invented besides the Macintosh. And I put it above the Apple II. I put it above the iPod. I put it above the iPhone. It's the greatest thing Apple's ever done besides the Macintosh. I well, really I believe the that. The industry would agree with you. Uh, what did I see? Was there the headline this week that it's got a faster, it, it's the, the most quickly adopted. Even over DVD. Uh, consumer technology over DVDs. I yeah. mean, that's, that's huge. Absolutely. That's huge. And, and, and every time we hear about some company like RIM coming out with a device that's an iPad killer, it's like, do, do me a favor, guys. Everybody go and learn something about the technology before you write about it. Yeah, we get back to that. And unfortunately, I don't think it's ever going to happen. Sensationalism sells. We know that. Um, We're in that. Say Gawker. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and and I've said this before in the past as well. I unbookmarked all my Gawker pages. What Uh they did to that poor guy at Apple was unconscionable. Unconscionable. Yeah. It's a little I, over the top. Um, it's it's unbelievable, and I I just refuse to visit their sites at all anymore. Uh, I think they're sleaze. Wait a minute, so you don't get your entertainment news from TMZ? Nope, sure don't. <laughs> you know, I'm oh, a pretty sorry. simple guy. I go to CNN, uh, local news, USA Today occasionally, but not very often. Um, and I follow a lot of stuff on Twitter. If people post something good on Twitter, I'll go check it out. If it is on Gawker, I usually know it immediately, and I'll go there and go, oops, that's Gawker, and I'll just close the page. I won't even read it. Um, There's just so many different ways that you can get news nowadays. You can really filter out a lot of the noise and really concentrate on what you want to hear about, but the problem with that is uh, you're filtering too much. There's other stuff that you should know that we were force-fed back in the 80s and the 70s, and that's how you broaden your knowledge. Nowadays, people are just filtering everything out. I only want to know about, you know, iPhone. That's it. That's the only news I want to get. Well, well it's a pretty it, it big becomes, world. What what you've got is a situation where people have creating much more vertical feedback loops. Yes. And, I agree. And I, I think that's one of the reasons that we see this increased polarization in, in discourse. Right, because, because they're only hearing w- what they already believe in. Right, absolutely. Yeah. And it's all about self-reinforcing and these, these feedback loops where basically you get stuck. And, and that explains in many ways what's going on. Certainly, uh, you look at, well, the computing world, right, uh, where everything is about bashing Apple. You know, this is going to kill Apple. This is going to kill, I mean, how many iPod killers were announced? Yeah, but you know they were they were doing the same thing against Microsoft when they were the big boys on the block. Um, it's already started somewhat against Google. It's whoever's succeeding is always going to have the biggest target yeah, painted on their back. You I know? guess there's no way to avoid that's there just isn't the future, right right. Yeah. I mean, um, it, it was cool for us to love and talk about Apple products in the mid to late '90s when nobody but us was buying them, and we were crying from the mountaintop. These are the Best computers you can get. Stop buying the crappy Late Windows, 90s, dude. I was I was doing that little dance in 1985. But they were selling well then. And my point is, when it oh, was no, when no, it no, was no, at, what, 85. No, they were still oh. being outsold by the Apple II. But what I mean is, at the darkest point of Apple's history, we were still out there trying to sell our friends, family, and complete strangers on the benefits of this computing platform over and above the more popular Windows platform. And we were pretty much ignored. Well, and and yeah. Apple didn't need us, but they well, are the Apple, big boys now. Apple very much needed us then. Well, uh, we, we, we know that, but live. you're um, right. Absolutely. And, and Tim, look, when it comes down to it, my brand loyalty is non-existent. I don't I have agree with you there. loyalty to anything except Twining's Tea. That's pretty much it. Yeah. If, if okay. Apple releases a stinker, I'm not going to buy it. I'm right with you. I don't care yeah. who makes it. I'm not supporting well, one company. I'm supporting what works for me, plain and, and simple. Absolutely. And ultimately, when it comes to what stuff that I was recommending to people, it was based on the strength of what was there and 
the strength of the software. And, yes. and this brings me back to this issue that what really kept the Mac alive in many ways was the really cool innovative software that came out either for it first or in many cases for it exclusively. That was what kept, because to me, and I've been saying this for a long time, man, when it comes down to microcomputers, they're nothing but programmable devices that run software. I don't give a damn what the device is. Tell me about what software is running on it. Mm -hmm. That's where the value is. I mean, this notion that people get like attached to the Apple brand, who, who cares? Show me what's running on it. I mean, like in the case of Photoshop, Photoshop was only available on the Mac for the first three or four years. You couldn't get it on Windows. That's right. And, and even for the first number of years it was available on Windows, you could only get decent color calibration hardware for, and software for the Mac. So even though you could run Photoshop on, under Windows, good luck with those colors and everything. <laughs> okay? And, oh, oh, by the way, gee, you want accurate mouse tracking? Yeah, good luck. Oh, good oh. luck on a Windows box today. Yep. Much less 10 years ago. And that's been something that's driven me crazy. And I, I wrote about and talked about that topic. I've been talking about the same thing for years. That years, man. Mousing on a Windows machine is horrible. It just doesn't work well. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and talk about a core issue, a core qualitative issue. They're, 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 you don't have a more core qualitative issue than how well the mouse tracks what you're doing. If you're working on a visual GUI, yeah, it's the. It was all about on Photoshop making really accurate selections. The bottom line was that you couldn't do that on a Windows box. You couldn't make an accurate selection. Basically, you'd have to try to get your hand nice and steady because the minute you try to click the mouse button, the cursor would jump. It was completely out of control, and this was something that typical journalists. They never covered this stuff because, and this is what's happened really in, in tech journalism, it's come down to a bunch of people who are essentially gawkers. They're bystanders. You have technical analysts writing about this stuff who don't really use technology. They don't, they don't for example, they don't use computers to make things. They use computers to consume things. Uh, the people who are writing now from the analysis point of view they're consumers they're they're pushing mice around they're not making a damn thing so they don't know about the real user experience because to them a user is a consumer yeah it's a me, paying a user, customer but, yeah but yep. to me a user is someone who uses the device to make things a lot this of people is not some great leap of logic man this is like thinking 101 yep i agree a lot of people ask what tech fan is going to be all about and i think uh, today illustrates exactly what Tech Fan, the podcast, is all about. It's technology. It's not just one computing platform. It's not one handheld device. It's not just video games. It's not just the Mac. It's whatever it is, this world of tech is what we're talking about. And uh, when it comes to that, David, I can't think of a better guest than you, man. Well, that's very kind of you, Tim. We, uh, we do the show every week. Of course, we never know what the schedule is going to be too far in advance because of my job as COO of Mac Specialist in Chicago and Villa Park. And I, have, I work crazy hours. It's in Chicago. I'm in West Michigan. It takes me you know, three hours just to get there. Boy. So, you know, things have to be uh, kind of last-minute planning. But I would really like to get you back on the show because I think that we just, we just barely started talking and we're over an hour at this point. Uh-oh. Isn't that crazy? Does it feel like yeah. it's been that long? It, you know, the old saying, it flies when you're having fun. <laughs> David, where can the listeners go to learn more about you? Find your writings, your Twitter, your... Oh, you. I, don't, I don't tweet, man. You don't I'm tweet? Sorry. I, 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 my thoughts don't fit in 140 characters <laughs> or words or whatever. No, they don't. I have a problem um, with that sometimes myself. Right now, uh, there, there's, uh, I, I, don't, I don't even know where to tell people to go find me. Don't find me. You've heard enough of it's me It's called here. Google. Do a Google search. Oh, gee, don't do that, man. That's the last <laughs> thing you want to do on me. <laughs> I don't know that, man. That's not the guy I know. <laughs> so, oh, well, sadly, when you Google me, the first hit you get is a stalker I have in Eastern Europe. So, oh, geez. Oh, wow, really? Oh, the Google. Oh, uh, yes. Guys do love to Google. Okay, before I offend anybody else. <laughs> We're going to wrap the show up this week. Uh, my name's Tim Robertson. 
His name is David Biedney. I can be found on Twitter at at MyMac. Check out MyMac.com. It's the flagship of all of our podcasting endeavors, including the geekiest show ever, which I, quite honestly, we haven't done in a while because my schedule and Chad Perry's schedule hasn't been lining up real well lately, but we're hoping to get a geekiest show ever out next week. We'll see if that works out. Is it the geekiest show ever? It is definitely the geekiest really, like, show ever. Really geeky, like really pinhead kind of geeky? Absolutely. I think we've done a number of Star Wars, Star Trek, um, sure. science fiction, comic books, video games. Dude, have the last one. one time, I'll come and give you like really messed up uh, George Lucas inside dirt. It'd be great. Dude, last one was our favorite comedies. Oh, really? Yeah, that was my favorite comedy of all time is Trains, Planes, and Automobiles. More than Blazing Saddles? More than serious? Blazing I love it. I, there was something about it. And I think it was. It had something to do with when I saw it, how I saw it, who I was with at the time. Uh-huh. It's more of that memory than it is probably the movie. But I love the movie. And if it's on and I'm flipping channels, I always stop you and will watch. You stop. Yep. Yeah. Uh, John Candy. Gotta love him. And John Hughes. He's the director of that, who we lost not too long ago, about a year ago Last at this year. point. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, Geekiest Show Ever, we have the MyMac Podcast. I played the spot earlier for the G-Men, gay, uh, gay, Guy and Gaz. Wow. Kind of combined oh. them in a bad way there, didn't I? Uh, we do have At Minute with Sam Levin. Now, you can go to atminute.com and find that podcast, but it is linked from MyMac, but it is part of the MyMac family. Uh, I own the At Minute, and uh, I produce Sam's show. So, if you're looking for... Really cool stuff for your iPhone, like Android. But it's old stuff. Jesus. I am. Well, you gotta you gotta branch out, right? Plus, it doesn't uh, take me. A, it doesn't take me a lot of time to do. I can do a podcast in my sleep now. I mean, we're recording this. It's a, It's literally uh, quarter after noon on yeah. Wednesday, and I got to go get my hair cut in fifteen minutes. By the way. All right. Well, then and, go. Uh, literally it, within two hours, this will be live in in iTunes. Sorry to hear it. Just doesn't take long anymore, you know. Of course, I am what you call a, a podcast pioneer. I've been doing this since day one, pretty much. So, but the, the the point I was getting to, though, David, before we wrap this up, is I don't always record these shows myself. I just produce them, which means I just do the XML and you know getting them into iTunes and submit and all that stuff. I do all the hard work that's not glamorous. There's other people out there that want to podcast. They just there's an intimidation factor. There's a, oh, my God, I don't know if I can really do that. But they could sit there and record a show. So I always make the offer to a lot of people, if you want to make a show and you don't want to deal with all the back-end stuff, let's partner up. So we can have cross-promotion. One show can promote the other shows. So you build an audience internally that it's, way. It's part of the show right now. People don't Absolutely. want to hear They do. Absolutely. Absolutely. They do. They love it. Because they want sex. And you know why? Because I've had people listening to the show in the past that wanted to do their own podcasting. They had no idea how to get it started and contacted me after hearing me talk about it on the show. And they actually launched shows. So people love it. You know, and I'm such a proponent of creating your own content, owning your own Glenn stuff. Glenn Beck got on the air? Seriously? Probably. Probably. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. You don't you don't have to agree with anything someone says to to profit off them, right? <laughs> well, you see, uh, I don't know about that. My uh, all right. Anyway, <laughs> enough inside baseball. We'll be back next week with Tech Fan Number Six. Hopefully, David Cohen will be able to join us again. And until then, make sure you check out all of our other shows and give us a shout out. Tim at mymac.com. And the Skype number is 1-801-938-5559. We'll play your messages right here on the air. See you next week. Thanks, David. My pleasure, Tim. Take care.